Well, thanks everyone for joining us today. I'm Nikki Gomes, the Senior Internal Auditor for the American Red Cross for both operations and IT. And joining me today, I have a special guest, Cybersecurity Governance Advisor for Deloitte, Dr. Blake Curtis. Thank you for having me. How's it going so far? I, it's going good. You know, I feel like it's an extended Monday, but uh, we're making it work. But other than that, yeah, just enjoying the week. How about yourself? Doing good, doing good. It's Wednesday here, so you know we're we're in the middle of the week and making things work as well. Same, right. same as you. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so I think to get us started, um, I'd like to learn a little bit more about you. And so if you could tell us a little bit of your background, a little bit about where you come from, your education. Sure, I, I can do that. So, like like you just mentioned, I'm a cybersecurity governance advisor and research scientist. Uh, my expertise and focus from an industry perspective is I specialize in cybersecurity auditing, governance risk compliance, privacy, and program management. And then from the scientific lens, I specialize in the science of expertise is where we reverse engineer cybersecurity expertise. I also specialize in deliberate practice training, memory optimization, cyberpsychology, education consulting, and even logic, rhetoric, and grammar, which is applied argumentation. So I, I do like arguing, but I didn't do it scientifically. Where I am actually from um, a really, really small town, not a lot of people. Um, do you remember a movie called Oh Brother, Why Out Thou Be Any Chance? Yes, yes, I yes. do. <laughs> right, now what's funny is in that movie, there was a radio station, remember, and they recorded a hit song and that radio station was called Tishomingo. Tishomingo is a real town <laughs> and it I was, really? and it really is it's a real town I was raised there it's about the size of maybe three or four Walmart super centers not big at all <laughs> <laughs> and uh the, the population is around about 331 uh, but the running joke is it's probably 330 because nobody goes back to Tishomingo when they leave so uh yeah I grew up real country um when I entered high school though I moved to South Haven Mississippi in Memphis, Tennessee. And so I resided in Memphis from 2004 to 2014. I actually attended a trade school called BL Hooks Job Course Academy. So I actually flunked out of high school and went to a trade school. And this is where I further explore my passion just for breaking things. I, I just like breaking things and putting them back together, Nikki. So um, that's pretty I was, awesome. Though. Right, right. It was it didn't matter what it was, if it was a power wheels back in the day or a TV, I just like, I wanted to take it apart, figure out how it works. And so at Job Corps, I got introduced to CompTIA certifications. So that's mm -hmm. how I actually got into the career. Wow. And that's, right, right. So that's pretty much how I got into it. Yeah. Who knew? So there's hope for my son. Okay. Thank you for telling me about breaking things. So there's hope for him. He's 10. So I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see what he's going to do. But that's, um, that's pretty, quite a story, you know. Um, and it's, it's a great story for, you know, people in communities like ours and, and underserved communities to have someone to look at as a role model to say, right. hey, you know, I can do this. You know, I can do this. And it, you know, find your passion and find what makes you tick and find, a, you know, break into an industry that is booming right now. Right. And, and it's not it's not easy. And I, I will say, I mean, there was a lot of trial and tribulations along the way. Like I remember studying while working. I was busting tables at Olive Garden just to come home smelling like breadsticks every day. <laughs> and uh, 
I was concurrently studying for the CompTIA A-plus exam. And then I landed my mm-hmm. first tech job, I think back in 07 or 08, Nikki. So from then on, I would work multiple support, PC repair and system engineering jobs. And I just really focused on accumulating as much knowledge and experience as I could. And so did that in Memphis. And then I moved moved from Memphis to Nashville, where I now reside. And my career just took off. So Nashville is a great place to really, really, really mold yourself. Like there's so many different jobs here. And I started to specialize more into systems and network engineering, as well as uh, information security at a place called Mars Pet Care in Franklin. And you literally could bring your dog in to work with you. It was the the coolest exactly. place ever. Right. And so it's still one of my favorite careers. I love the culture over there. I love the people. Um, but I just wanted to specialize more in security. So moved over to Vanderbilt University. And mm-hmm. at Vanderbilt, I was a principal security architect. And I was responsible for developing third-party risk management, DOD-compliant environments, HIPAA, GDPR, DBGAP, and so forth. But what made me leave the uh, the higher ed space was I just saw a ceiling and I wasn't ready to hit that ceiling yet being being young. So I went into to the healthcare field at Cigna and there I was a global information security and compliance advisor. So essentially the senior manager managing a team, I think it was a team of step five to seven individuals where we were conducting 1600 application security assessments against the HIPAA security rule and state and federal requirements. Now, the unfortunate part, Nikki, is I was finding it difficult balancing, you know, completing a doctorate degree, managing and mentoring a team, and being present as a husband. So I decided to step down from senior management into an analyst role at Deloitte. And I lost over $30,000 doing that too. But you know, I wanted to prioritize my education. I was very passionate about my research and I'm very passionate about my wife. So you, you got to prioritize the right thing. That's right. Right. Now, interesting, like when even when I was doing analyst work at Deloitte, it didn't last too long. Mm-hmm. Within two months there, I'm right back to doing manager work, developing another security assurance program. It was called the Secure System Development Lifecycle 2.0 or SSDLC. What you'll like about it, though, is I was able to quickly build it based off the scientific research that I was doing in my doctoral program and also from a custom GRC tool that I developed called the Curtis Newton Framework. And the reason why I built it, and this is this is good advice for anybody, if you're building seven to 10 programs, it's going to become exhausting starting from scratch every time. Right, every time, Yes. <laughs> Right. So, you know, I just develop my own solution so I can consult, teach from, I even make most of my publications from it. And so now today, Nikki, I'm the architect of the SSDLC 2.0 program at Deloitte, received funding, and I'm helping my manager build out that team for the next couple of years. That is pretty amazing. So I want to rewind back a little bit because I'd like to know, how do you go from this young gentleman in a small town flunking out of high school to this driven and passionate person. And and I'm speaking for, you know, many people that may be in that position. And I don't know what, you know, you have to have some kind of motivation and something Mm -hmm. to kickstart yourself. Right. And so sometimes it's hard to see that in high school. And, you know, I know I'm sure as, as a parent, uh, 
you know, people were like, what is this child doing? You know, <laughs> he can't even graduate high school. But what in the world is he going to do in life? And it's hard for people to see through yes. that, right? But, yes. you know, there's always hope for someone. And I just kind of want to understand how, what, what contributed to, what contributed to and what kickstarted that drive in yeah. you to continue on the path you're on? That's a great question. I, you know, I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I, when I grew up, I just knew I wanted to fix things. So I oscillated back and forth between the health field, psychology, law, technology. However, I couldn't see myself in white scrubs, first of all, and I would faint at the sight of blood. So <laughs> not, not happening. But if I wasn't in tech today, you know, I'd be a, a cognitive or behavioral psychologist or potentially a business consulting psychologist. But I think what made me me is growing up humble in the small town and, and country roots. So growing up in a single wide trailer with no more than $300 a month to live on made me extremely humble as a child, but potentially matured me way beyond my years. I even taught like an old man when I was younger, which is kind of funny. <laughs> but, you know, I, I grew up picking purple hole peas, corn, okra. I used to hunt and fish wow. with my grandfather. Um, so my, my definition of labor or hard work is going to be significantly different from the people I, I encounter with from larger cities or who are more financially independent. So I, I do think that country upbringing has influenced my personality, my work ethic, and your, your life. Is, I remember my grandfather giving me some really good advice when I was younger. I had, a, I had a habit of saying, I wish I had this or I wish I had that. And my grandfather would turn, look at me sternly and say, well, when are you going to stop wishing, wanting, and waiting and actually start working for what you want in life? Because nobody owes you anything. That's right. Nikki, that stuck with me. And he says, look, lower your expectations. Nobody's going to give it. He said, work, work your hardest. So that way, you know, when you turn back and it's 30 years later, you have no regrets. And that's just really stuck with me throughout my life. I would say outside of growing up country, uh, a big part of it, and this is especially for minorities, I grew up practicing stoicism, which means I'm an individual who practices self-governance and emotional regulation. So, and I do that so I can generate value for my loved ones, for my friends and my colleagues, even at Zaka. And what that means is before I speak or I act, there's a common phrase we use called amor fati, which means remember death. So when you're speaking to someone and before impulsively responding, ask yourself, would I speak to them the same way if I knew they were going to die tomorrow, if they had some illness or they lost someone that they cared about? And it immediately makes you more intentional. And the truth that is, is so great philosophy. I right. like that. And right. I, I was reading through some of your information and you talked about, you know, adopting that because you initially had anxiety and anger issues. Yes. And that's you could adopt something to help you through that. I mean, that's such an important trait to have right now. Right. You know. Yeah. Cause we don't, we honestly don't know what people are going through, nor do we actually take the time to ask right. others, you know, what their expectations are for communication. Uh, and that's really important to you as a leader. Don't come in just trying to mandate that people act a certain way. You have to create psychological safety and, and room for failure. Um, and and I, I would I would prioritize stoicism now because even with my grandfather, even though he gave me really good, really good advice, they come from a different generation that's not as in tune with well-being and mental health like me and you are. That's right. 
Exactly. That right. meant nothing back in the day. <laughs> no, no, just it's like, like, you know, dust it off, stop crying. Right. Put some dirt on it, stop crying, get on about your way. <laughs> that is so true. I like that. Right. Thank you for sharing that stoicism and mindfulness is so important in today, even more in today's world, right? So, right. you know, I, I appreciate you saying that. Right. So, I have a question. So, you wanted to do something else in life before when you were younger, you wanted to do something else when you grew up. Can you, can you share a little bit about that? What, what that was? Yeah. yeah um, I wanted to be a music producer. I, I wanted to produce music, whether it was going to be theme music or background music for movies. Uh, I wanted to do things for training videos and uh, fun fact is back in Memphis at Botanical Gardens, it may have been, 07, 08, could have been a little earlier than that. I actually had one of my beats work with with, my, with our band. We opened up for, I think it was Neo, Monica, and Lloyd at the time. And I was just, I was having a hard time trying to balance out what I wanted to do in life and what I needed to do. So I eventually had to put all the studio equipment up and really focus on getting a career in IT where I could do the things I wanted to do later in life. Right. So do you right. think you will ever touch that area again in music? Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's actually a keyboard yeah. behind me right now. I'm, I'm going to get back into it. I I found that growing up with a lot of anxiety and um, broken homes, too, music was my outlet. It, it allowed mm-hmm. me to really be in a room, think about it, kind of put your emotions out on the song itself. And it mm-hmm. helped a lot of hard times. I think we share a lot of commonalities. I just, um, I love music. I always have. I sing, mm-hmm. I dance, I teach Zumba. I do all that stuff. And I, I too feel that music is, it's a way to connect with people. One, you can listen to music in another language and not even know what it, what they're talking about, but it still sounds right. good. And you know that right. it, it feels good, right? Right, <laughs> so. definitely. Definitely music is something that that will calm you and put you in a different space when you are experiencing anxiety or anger. I mean, a lot of times that's what they do with babies initially. Yeah. You know, they're happy and they turn on some kind of music and they start soothing them and they calm down. So it's yeah, that's pretty awesome. I, I love that that you have such a diverse span of, of different things that you do, you're passionate about and that you do and that you you don't you prioritize them, but you don't put one above the other. You know, right. you still take part in them, but you know, it's it's nice to have that diversity. And you know, sometimes people see tech people as um, robots. You know, exactly. <laughs> yes, that's a robot. You know, more right. personality. You don't do anything else. All you do is you work on the computer, you work on the tech stuff, and that's it. And so I like it's nice to be able to see someone in the tech realm that that has you know, other things that they do right. that they enjoy. <laughs> right, right. Most definitely. So I want to shift a little bit. I want to talk a little bit more about your educational career. Okay. Because you have, you, you continue to surprise me. I love reading about everything you're doing. I love to see your LinkedIn post. And I'm always so surprised, like, what in the world is he up to now? So, you know, you've gone through the educational system well more than lightning speed. And I need to understand a little bit more about that. How did, how in the world did you do that? How did you 
I mean, you're busy. You're yeah, very uh, busy. <laughs> so how yeah. did you get through? How did you get through? And how how did you get through so efficiently? Give us some words of wisdom. Yeah, I can I can I can definitely go into it. I, so the the running joke at Deloitte in my previous job that Blake is either part robot or cyborg. Even before here, they're like, Blake, you're everywhere, like your own podcast and everything else. <laughs> and um there, there, there is a common thing, but there, there's a method to my learning ability and memory skills. So for example, you know, I completed my bachelor's degree in about two and a half years. And immediately afterwards, I completed my master's of science degree in about 10 weeks and, and set a record. Then instead of just, you know, setting that record and completing within that one semester, I then created an article to help other master's degree students complete it in one semester and save thousands of dollars. And then lastly, at my doctorate degree in cybersecurity, I completed in about two years, four months, and published a 600-page dissertation. Uh, most recently completed the psychology of leadership program at Cornell. And Congratulations I'm, to you. Thank yes. you. Thank you. Yeah, that's definitely a good program for leaders. Strangely enough, Nikki, yes, I was just accepted into another doctoral degree program in cyberpsychology. Uh, where I'll be focusing on equity, cybersecurity expertise, and business psychology. But what makes this abnormal is that I was working a full-time job, still obtaining over 33 certifications, which are still weirdly all active right now. But the way that you do this and what makes me so efficient is that I focused on learning how to learn, not the abstract inf information, but how does your brain work? How do you encode memories differently through your soma, axons, and neurons? And how do you create what we call a biological incentive, incentive system or BIS? What are the things that you have habits with every day that are potentially taking away hours and months and years away from your life because you're not paying attention to it? So uh, many years ago, I took up training on becoming a, a memory practitioner, which is some, someone who can remember facts, principles, and techniques faster and the reason why I did that is because it's going to enable me to acquire much more information and organize it for pastor recall. So I'm like, I really, really got into that. And it started pulling me a little bit away from cyber. And I said, maybe I should specialize in cyber psychology and expertise and deliberate practice training and emphasize things like space repetition through Anki note cards. And that's something I would definitely recommend. Yeah, space repetition through Anki note cards is a game changer. So these are one of the things I provide for a lot of my mentees. And mm -hmm. then there's also I have some tips for you for preparing for IT certifications too. So for example, there's a concept that I call gap studying. So gap studying is where you identify maybe three to four similar certification tracks. But mm -hmm. what you want to do is look at the rubric or the syllabus between them, because there's going to be a significant amount of overlap between them. Uh, right. And, right. Since there's so much similarity, you can take that hardest exam first and then immediately study for the other exams by only focusing on the weak areas. Don't spend all the time reading that book and rehashing it. So this is one of the many ways that I acquire a lot of knowledge and so many credentials quickly. And you can tell it gets better because when I first started, you know, I was averaging about one to two certifications a year. Well, today I average about maybe five to six certifications. That's an awesome way. I am so bad at reading a book from the beginning to end. <laughs> and you don't have to. You, you I absolutely am, like, I just to. feel like, oh, I have this book. I feel like I need to read everything. And I literally no. do. I read everything. No. From then I go back through it. I go, okay, let me let me restudy what I just read. No, no. <laughs> I like uh, that look, process. Look, 
you'll like a method called SQ3R, which is like survey, scan, read, recite, and review. And so I'm hearing that. Yeah. So if you look at the the headings of a book, that's how you should read it. So if you look at the very first sentence of a paragraph, that's called the limited idea or the controlling opinion there. That's going to tell you. You can just turn it into a question and the paragraph tells you all the answers. But people, when we read, we just kind of read and we're just there. There's no method to it. But if you take that first sentence or that heading and turn that into a question out of your book and use the paragraph to answer your question, yeah, you can come up with your whole certification program just like that. Oh my goodness, I love it. I, I You've given me some knowledge <laughs> to even help with my kids. <laughs> I'm gonna pass this on. <laughs> you are teaching me some new things here. I am, I am, I always enjoy connecting with you. So I'm, I'm excited to really be here learning this information and sharing this with the world. So I hope everyone really enjoys this. About your dissertation, Mm-hmm. So you talked about the years of experience fallacy mm-hmm. and, and I had the opportunity to attend your um, session in IsakaCon in New Orleans. So here's where, here's where this funny story comes in that I have to share. So I have to tell everyone that I, I was a volunteer at the Osaka conference in Louisiana and I'm thinking that I'm going to have another volunteer to help me in the session. And so in walks Dr. Blake. And I'm like, hi, are you my volunteer? He's like, uh, no, I'm your speaker. <laughs> so at that very moment, I was instantly nervous. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm introducing this gentleman. He's the speaker. <laughs> so that is how we initially ran into each other. But I was already, before I even met you, I was already excited to attend this session. And, and I was so excited. As a matter of fact, we had a little mishap with the volunteers where someone thought they were going to do this one. I'm like, no, this is the one I have to attend. So it was destined for us to meet. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I, I enjoyed it. I mean, you did a fantastic job, kept me on track. So I, I definitely appreciate that. Well, I appreciated you even more because I mean, it was such an interesting session. I mean, people had so many questions. They were you could tell they were really astonished by your findings. And yeah. so I want you to get it, get into that a little bit more with us, you know, about your, your research. Yeah. Yeah, I, can, I can do that. So I started my degree back in 2020 and I knew I wanted to focus on IT auditors competency. And it was based on what I had been encountering in the field as an engineer, as an architect who was implementing the technology. But what I also found to be odd when I became an IT auditor and started assessing and collecting evidence for those very same technologies. And what I noticed, Nikki, was that even seasoned IT auditors were challenged with interpreting technical evidence, screenshots, configuration, script codes, interfaces, you name it. And because of this, I was able to quickly rise the ranks because my background was technical. But then I had this, I had this question. I said, if the IT auditor can't interpret technical evidence or identify security control risks, could their audit quality influence data breach likelihood? Better yet, how does it affect our national security and our critical infrastructure for power, water, banking, and communications? Now, this question arose because I just learned, and this is interesting, and probably the the star of the segment, where the 2017 Equifax breach occurred, they actually just underwent a 27,001 assessment by one of the firms in the big four. And so the firm certified Equifax for vulnerability management. 
But that same Apache Struts vulnerability led to the compromise of 147 million consumers' personal identifiable information. So how does that happen? So what I did for the past three years is, you know, develop the 600-page dissertation, and I found that it's traditional auditors that came from accounting and auditing backgrounds, and they were licensed to conduct financial audits on financial records. But that license did not transfer over when they became IT auditors. So there is no regulation for IT auditors. Um, so thus auditors, cybersecurity pro professionals, and even GRC, none of those fields are regulated. Like right. healthcare, law, medicine, yes, we don't have- any, There's not a law right. out there. Right. We, we don't have any federal or state boards that mandate minimal standards for competency. And so what you see is an overabundance of certifications and boot camps. Matter of fact, there's over 938 certifications over 56 vendors. So the problem is there is that the accreditation for our certs are not the same as licenses. Remember, uh, certifications are going to help distinguish a set of knowledge, not skill, demonstrable skill from another individual. But the license is there to protect the public from the incompetent practitioners. And these are mandatory. Now, what's funny is you don't even have to have a lot of certifications to go out and conduct IT audits or be in the field. But your barber, your cosmetologist, your home inspector, your nurse and your doctor can't practice without it. That's it's so strange. So where I, where I, what I did was I said, this is an interesting phenomenon. Where does it start? So it started all the way back in 1956 with the introduction of electronic data processing or EDP. And what happened at this time is that these accounting machines were becoming uh, mechanized. And so organizations like Haskin and Sales, which was the predecessor to Deloitte, that would reach out to the Institute of Internal Auditors for assistance because now the concept of reasonable assurance relied on technical competency. So even over all of those decades in the establishment of ISACA in 1969, which fun fact, ISACA was called Electronic Data Processing Auditors Association. Or EDA, right. But they were there because they realized there was no licensure, there was no government, government funding. So what does ISACA do? They stepped up. But in the educational system, accounting professors actually refused to introduce technical curriculum. Why? Because they had no actual experience. So 50 years later, after I did that 600-page dissertation, what I found was is that a lack of collaboration between IT, cyber, IT audit, and no federal and state support led to a significant knowledge gap in 151,000 IT auditors, theoretical knowledge, and practical skill across the big four and big tech. Because remember, where do, the, where do the big tech auditors come from? Big four. So you have... Right, Deloitte, KPMG, PwC, EY, Meta, Amazon, Google. And so what we found right now is that the IT auditors' theoretical knowledge in things like separation of duties, lease privilege, and role-based access control, that's adequate. There's no problem there. But right. what's weird is your subject matter experts who implement it, they're still more proficient than the IT auditors. Now, unfortunately, the IT auditors' hands-on skill performing those actual audit tasks those were insufficient, Nikki. So the IT auditors had inadequate levels of what we call procedural knowledge, which in layman's term is demonstrable skills, being able to interpret technical evidence. And what that means is those same controls around lease privilege and SOD, they could not apply those to modern technologies in Amazon Web Services, uh, Google Cloud Platform, Windows, Linux, Palo Alto, Kubernetes. 
that's modern technologies. That means eight out of 10 IT auditors have a difficulty auditing security controls for modern uh, modern technology. Um, now, here's the question, Nikki. If that's if that's the case with modern technology, don't you think it's going to be more challenging for emerging technology in industry? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Right. Right. So what we do there is the way you make this scientifically back and quantify, because most research is qualitative surveys. I'm a quantitative a research scientist. So what we did is to calculate these findings, we use the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST. They have a framework for competency called the National Initiative for Cybersecurity Education. And that's what we did to identify the auditor's knowledge, skills, and abilities in their task performance. Notice I said task performance, not time or years of experience. But to grade it, we use, a, we use another competency framework called the Skills Framework for Information Age, or SOFIA. And what that allowed us to do is that the IT auditors had a procedural knowledge score of 1935, which is uh, SOFIA level two assist, which means they need a lot of hands-on just to make sure they interpret it. And then their knowledge, they know a lot of theoretical, but when it comes to actually doing it, that knowledge just declined. And the last fact I'll, I'll bring up here is that every single one of the procedural knowledge questions for the auditors and SMEs they were linked to notable breaches in US history, like the 2016 Uber data breach, the 2018 Ticketmaster data breach, Capital One and more. So what does that mean? That means the lack of our hands-on skills in IT and our inability to interpret technical evidence is influencing data breach likelihood in critical infrastructure. And Nikki, here's a yes. question for you. So if we're the third line of defense and responsible for certifying organizations with ISO 27001, high trust, bed wrap, SOT 2 type 2, then what is the average consumer going to think about the resiliency of our third party assessments? There is not going to be much trust in it, I tell you that. <laughs> right. Right. Now, you know, unintentionally while I was doing this, I actually debunked the 10,000 hour rule and years of experience fallacy. And the 10,000 hour rule has been debunked quite, quite long ago, but I've added to it. But I am the yeah, first black scientist. Listen, um, for those that are not familiar with the 10,000 hour rule, can you can you kind of paint a little bit more? Yeah, I sure can. So everybody remembers this author named Malcolm Gladwell who had a book called Outliers. And you'll start seeing the 10,000 hour rule. Like it takes you 10,000 hours to become proficient in something. Here's the thing that's also influenced your job description. So when you see these five and 10 years of experience, they're referencing the 10,000 hour rule. The problem is Malcolm Gladwell is not a scientist, people. He's a journalist. And so nobody questioned where he got it from. He got the 10,000 hour rule from the father of expertise, Anders Ericsson. Uh, I think it was about 1993, 1995, where he conducted a study on violinists. And the violinists were from the ages of about eight to 18 years old who self-reported how much time they were studying. Remember the violinists are one of the most hardest instruments in the world though. And mm -hmm. It was never 10,000 hours, about 7,500 on average, but Gladwell rounded it up to 10,000 because that was a nice round number. And that's not my words. That is the original researcher. So what happens? Well, one, everybody in this room has more than 10,000 hours driving a car. None of us drive a NASCAR right now. That's one thing. The other thing is that you have 10,000 hours playing basketball, baseball. None of us are Serena Williams. None of us are LeBron James, just not a thing. So what I did in my study is, all right, let's see if we can further debunk it. If there's more hours spent doing a task, 
then competency should actually go up. It's not. It never did. So I was able to debunk that, but I started thinking like, okay, well, how does that play on years of experience? Mm -hmm. And what I wind up doing was being the, the first black scientist to actually debunk years of experience. But let me know if you want to get into that too, because there's a little fun exercise we could do. Thank you for joining us for part one of this conversation with Dr. Blake Curtis. Click on the link in the description for part two.